This podcast is brought to you by Minimal Productions. Producer Jim Mintz. This is Diplomates, a geopolitical chinwag with your host, Misha Zielinski. Wayne Swan is the president of the Labor Party. He served as Australia's Treasurer from 2007 to 2013 and was Deputy Prime Minister. Wayne is credited with helping save Australia from the GFC and in 2011 was crowned World Finance Minister of the Year. As the author of numerous books on social policy, Wayne has led the debate on the negative impacts of economic inequality. Swanee joined me for a chinwag about what went wrong in the 2019 election, why fiscal policy still matters, how far-right nationalists are using inequality to win government around the world, why big philanthropy is a big problem, how Australians should manage an assertive Chinese Communist Party, and where to from here for social democrats around the world. As you can tell, it's a big chat. We pack a lot in, so I really hope you enjoy it. And please be sure to jump onto iTunes or your favourite podcasting app, rate, review the episode. It helps spread the word and gets plenty more people listening to the show. Enjoy the episode. Wayne Swan, welcome to Diplomates. Thank you for joining us. Good to be here. Now, um, what a place that we could start. It's been a few months since the 2019 federal election. You know, it's been a, it was a difficult one for Labor Party people, Labor Party supporters and members. I'm kind of curious, firstly, did you see it coming? And then, to your mind, what went wrong is a big question, but you know, we can start there maybe. Well, I didn't think we were going to have an easy victory, and I think the way in which the the opinion polls were hyped up and the expectations got out of control and the bookies got it all wrong uh, simply heightened an an inevitability about our victory that wasn't there in the foundations. And indeed, I don't think it was there in the published opinion polling either. Yes, it was wrong, but it was not out in many respects. And there's no way in the world that uh, anyone who was studying the opinion polling closely could have formed the conclusion that we were headed for a massive victory. Uh, Changes of government in Australia are always difficult, particularly for the Labor Party, and that applied last time. Uh, There are some things we did well, there are some things we did badly. Uh, We're having a review about all of that, but I don't think that there should be any automatic knee-jerk reaction uh, when people are analysing the result. So there's been a lot of talk, I mean, your your state of Queensland, Labor did most poorly there in terms of our primary vote, but there's a lot of discussion about Labor's performance in regional areas, out of suburban areas, and this sort of discourse that you know, we've lost touch with traditional Labor voters, more working class voters. Is that something that you think is true or something you're concerned about? Well, there's no doubt that the Liberal Party campaign managed to dislodge many low-income, uh, uh, insecure Uh, and loosely politically aligned voters uh, from the Labor camp. No doubt about that at all. I think part of that uh, was a very effective scare campaign and particularly a campaign run under the radar via social media, uh, which was promoting uh, an economic Armageddon uh, through death taxes and other claims that were terribly effective, uh, got under our guard, and dis- did dislodge those voters from our camp. So we've got some fundamental reassessment to do there because if you look around the Western world and you look at the progress of social democratic parties, there's no question that what I call the, la- the radical right, uh, and I include uh, the Liberal Party of Australia, which has now been taken over, if you like, uh, by, by hard right elements, there's no small L liberals in it. Around the world, those groupings have been successful uh, in removing voters, uh, particularly lower income working people, from uh, support for social democratic parties through the use of wedge politics, through the use of race, through the use of gender, 
and increasingly through the use of climate change, uh, to, to pull those voters away from their traditional social democratic support. And so you talked a little bit about this, uh, you know, the online campaign that we saw, but also there was the impact of the Clive Palmer money. Sure. How much did that influence the outcome? Well, there's no question that the Clive Palmer money supercharged uh, the themes that the Liberal Party were running. The Clive Palmer Palmer money was part of the Conservative spend. So the biggest single spend that I can find in the Western world by a single person in an election campaign was turned into a preference recycling scheme aimed particularly at those groups that I spoke about before, and it was very successful. So when people are are evaluating this result, you can't uh, uh, ignore the impact of this big money, uh, which certainly had an impact uh, in my home state. But I don't believe the results in Queensland, putting aside the the central and uh, north Queensland seats, were any different to what we saw anywhere else in the country. Uh, It's true we did lose the outer suburban uh, vote and we uh, lost a regional vote, but that was no different in Queensland than it was anywhere else bar in Queensland the three seats that you would describe uh, as directly affected by the issue of coal where there were separate circumstances. So I don't think the result in Queensland was little different to the result that we saw in outer suburban Sydney, regional Victoria or regional New South Wales or for that matter in, in cities like Perth. Now, unpacking this, you, know, you touched on the global phenomenon, and I think that this is a challenge for all social democratic parties around the world, seeing this global populism. In many ways, you know, I think this this is almost the US 2016 election result or the Brexit result sort of arriving in Australia. It has similar characteristics. So I'm kind of curious, what do you think, firstly, what's driving this sure. global populism, and then why is it that the right and the far right seem to be able to dig into it a bit This is the critical it? question. Uh, the fact is that the Great Recession or otherwise known here as the global financial crisis, really shattered the foundations uh, of modern capitalism, uh, which had already been loosening through 40 years uh, in the growth of income uh, and wealth uh, inequality. And that growth of income and wealth inequality has bred resentment. Uh, And that resentment uh, has uh, materialised in the form of much more insecure work, the disappearance of uh, what were once solid career opportunities with decent pay. And that's in in, in many ways shattered uh, the faith of those people in basically their democratic arrangements. Uh, And as that's occurred, unless governments domestically put in place a range of policies to look after those people, indeed as we did, uh, principally in this country... Uh, those votes increasingly became lost uh, to basically what I'd call the centre-left, and they've been increasingly captured uh, by what I would call the radical right. You've seen this most particularly in recent elections in Scandinavia. You've seen it in Sweden. You've seen it in Finland. You've seen it around the world. That that uh, the use of race, the use of gender, to play into the insecurities of working people uh, and to play into their loss of faith in the authority structures and decision-making structures in a society where they see the great gains of their labour, principally going uh, to to a few at the top, uh, has been the driver of the radical right and the great failure of the post-war period. See, for 30 years following the war, um, policies were put in place to drive a more equal and fairer society, and they were done as a hedge against communism on the left and fascism on the right. Uh, Following the rise of Thatcher and Reagan and the advent of trickle-down economics, otherwise known by many as neoliberalism, 
uh, we've seen a growth in rampant income, wealth and inequality. Uh, and that has seen a fracturing in societies where there was once a consensus about a fairer share being the best way to drive prosperity uh, and growth uh, into this notion of trickle-down economics that if you give more to the top, then somehow everyone down the bottom will benefit. Well, that's just produced an enormous amount of distrust and it has created, if you like, the political space uh, for the rise of the authoritarian radical right, which we now see so dominant in many countries across Europe, and you see represented in the leadership of Donald Trump. So, yeah, you know, and you covered a lot there about the, the <clears throat> I suppose, the the, the conditions um, for that's allowing this radical right to rise around this insecurity, the economic inequality. The thing that's, I think, got everyone, uh, at least is on the centre-left of politics, about how do we respond to this, is that the conditions would seem to be good for a social democratic agenda around inequality. They certainly are, but there, ha- there hasn't been... Uh, the sort of social democratic leadership that we've required. I mean, we've done best here in Australia and New Zealand where we've had our social democratic aspirations reflected in Labor parties. Uh, and uh, the, the, the anchor of, of a Labor party is, of course, the trade union movement, which provides that, that, that uh, direct linkage. Uh, and I think that has been why you could actually say that the big difference say, between the radical right in Australia having a section of a Liberal government and and manifested, say, in the form of uh, Paul Hanson with a couple of senators, the big difference between, uh, b- between that uh, and the election, say, of a Donald Trump in the United States has been 30 years' worth of real, gro- real wage growth in Australia and 30 years of wage stagnation in the United States. But we started to see that wage stagnation. We started to see the profit share rise, the wage share be suppressed. We've seen policies increasingly in this country after the six years where pre-tax income has been suppressed in the form of wage suppression. Post-tax income has been suppressed in the form of more regressive taxation. The twin combination of unfair taxes and low wage growth is tailor-made for either an ascendant social democratic party to storm to victory or for a radical populist to storm to victory if the social democratic offering is not up to scratch. Now, you can't... And when you translate that into our last election result, we should have won, but we didn't have... We didn't have the sort of defeats either uh, that you've seen in in various other social democratic offerings in the past. That's not an excuse uh, for uh, for our outcome. And so... In terms of connecting with working people and, and, and sort of reflecting their concerns, one of the challenges seems to be that there's a perception, at least, um, that all sides of politics have been sort of colonised by so-called elites, and that seems to uh, particularly hollow out the social democratic side of politics, both here and abroad. I mean, is, do you think there's something about this question of being elites being from nowhere and people well, being from somewhere, this question of place? Well, I think, there's a, that, well I think that is really important, and I think it's, it's a reminder to all of us on the centre-left of politics that to be out there with the people all of the time, of, of the people all of the time, as comfortable in the tea room as you are in the boardroom, uh, is absolutely critical. And I think many of our, our comrade parties around the world, uh, in particularly the US Democrats, have fallen prey and have not really learnt uh, that lesson. So I think it's, 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 it's something we all have to keep in mind, but it is also something that the radical right specialises in through their authoritarian leadership and the associated gutter campaigns that they put into the system beneath the radar. And I would uh, you know, cite in this uh, example, uh, you know, the vilification and uh, the smashing of the standing and reputation of Bill Shorten behind the scenes through one of the most aggressive 
um, and unprincipled uh, demolition jobs on a, a uh, politician's character and standing that I've seen in my whole time in politics. Well, and so in terms of, um, you know, one of the things I think is challenging for social democrats is that, you know, as uh, faith in democracy, faith in government goes down, it almost suits the right-wing agenda because they don't like government. Well, of course it does. You see, the whole right-wing agenda, and this is what you see at the core of this government here, is to destroy the credibility and standing of government and to demonise government intervention. So... Stage one of that was to demonise our surplus, which saved our country from recession, to continue to demonise it, to do that and to get into bed with plutocrats and parts of the business community so that when next time a huge global event comes, no government will have the guts to stand up and do what the Rudd and Gillard governments did in a time of need, which was to protect our people and to use the power of government to do so. But it is ongoing. You've only got to pick up a newspaper or observe just about any policy of this current Liberal government and find at its core an attempt to destroy the credibility and efficiency of public service provision. And there is perhaps no program that demonstrates that more than their so-called robo-debt campaign that's going on in Centrelink. The treating of people, that they're failure to hire staff in Centrelink so that when the public wants to actually ring and find out what their entitlements, they're on hold for 30 minutes an hour. This is all part of a a systematic attempt to destroy uh, the quality of public service provision so they can turn around in the end and say to democratic parties, social democratic parties like mine, look, you can't trust government. They can't deliver services. I'll tell you what, we've got a better offering. Have a tax cut instead. Mm. And so you you touched on plutocrats and one of the things I'm so curious about and there's been a big backlash against what you call the Davos types. And so, I mean... How do we make the case that democracy and government is still the answer, given that you're seeing increasingly this big philanthropist plutocrats where the argument is we can return the benefits of this inequality? Yeah. Well, it's outrageous and shocking. Mm. If people want to give money and make their society a better place, fantastic. But don't expect a tax deduction. Don't erode the basis of the government to provide the basic service provision upon which a civilised society depends. It's just shocking that people who don't actually pay pay the right amount of tax in the first place, then turn around and want to give more money and get a tax deduction for that. Look, I I know many people in the Australian business community who pay their taxes and they give away a lot of money. But equally, there are plenty of people with a lot of money who aren't paying their fair share of taxes and still expect a tax deduction and be regarded and fated in the community because they've given away money when they have shattered the very linkage uh, between uh, collecting tax and service provision by becoming tax termites and ripping away uh, at the very uh, essence of a civilised society. And it also is fundamentally undemocratic in that ultimately, you know, you want to see taxes collected by the government, people deciding where those taxes should be. Like, exactly. Yeah, yeah, put, and and no wonder election. people then lose faith in democracy because mm. they see people who are obviously uh, have a lot of money. They see the publication from the tax stats, tax stats that they're not paying it. And then, then they see them standing up pretending to be very generous because they're at, they're at some very worthy cause, using these people as a shield against the underlying evasion they're engaged in, and they expect to be clapped. No wonder the average person gets cynical. I mean, no wonder the average wage worker gets really cynical when all they ever hear is of high-profile people, be, be, be they sporting people in rugby union or whatever, who are earning millions of dollars a year 
but no one's out there debating at the same time the fact that they can't even get an enterprise bargaining up for a 2% increase. And they see this, uh, this conflict, a, a news agenda dominated by elements of identity politics and big money for the top end of town. And on the other, they don't hear many reports about the fact that their enterprise bargaining has been squashed and they're not going to get a decent wage increase for the next couple of years. And so, you know, in terms of this question of identity politics and economic justice, I mean, do you see those things in conflict? Because a lot of people say, well, uh, we have to choose one or the other. But, you know, my view is the thing that can unify people the most around whatever their identity is, is around economics and class. And just ask Martin Luther King. I mean, it's just, it's just not well known that, that when he went on his freedom march, it was called jobs and freedom. Mm. And it was called jobs and freedom for a reason, that gender equality, uh, racial equality is always going to be un- ultimately completely unattainable without a degree of economic inequality. So we don't ignore them. They're all part of the same equation. But when, if, when you're a truck driver uh, in Western Sydney or when you're a steel worker in Wollongong and all you ever hear about is, 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 a, is a sporting hero on a million dollars a year having a court case dominating the news every night, and then you're told in, in, in your latest bargaining round that you're not getting even a reasonable increase, well, you really get the shits. Mm. And so, I mean, it's interesting, isn't it? Whereas you talk to people in the business community or you talk to the Davos set and they say, what are we going to do about populism? You say, pay taxes and uh, lift wages. And they're like, well, I uh, guess we'll never solve it then, right? Well, the, two, the <laughs> so- two most fundamental elements of doing something about the entrenched long-term inequality uh, in our community are progressive tax and a stronger voice for, for workers, principally through unions. Mm. And so you, you touched a little bit about uh, the economy, um, GFC response or the Great Recession response. I'm kind of curious, firstly, you're a former treasurer. What's your take on the state of the economy at the moment? It's a current, you know, we're in a, the weakest period of growth we've had pretty much for a decade. Well, 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 it's a weak and anemic growth induced by the federal government's refusal uh, to put in place decent spending on infrastructure. It's pretty simple, really. Uh, and it's uh, galling. Uh, to watch the current treasurer somehow go out and try and blame uh, the Reserve Bank for the fact that their fiscal policy isn't working and that he intends to put pride ahead of outcome. We didn't put pride ahead of outcome when our economy was challenged. I mean, imagine if these clowns were in charge and there was a pronounced international downturn, the likes of which we had uh, back in 2008 and 2009. Well, I know what they'd do. They wouldn't, they wouldn't act because they're part of the, a weird brigade out there that wants a, the cleansing impact of a recession because they see that as eating away at the, of the power of workers and a way of reducing wages. And they also see it as a political opportunity to run some of the authoritarian lines that, uh, that, uh, that may work uh, for the sort of uh, parties of the far right elsewhere when people feel dreadfully insecure. And so you talked about, you know, basically that, you know, the Reserve Bank, which is in control of monetary policy, yeah. and the Treasurer, who's ostensibly in charge of fiscal policy. Now, there's a suggestion they're going to be pulling against one another. So well, that's right. Well, the, the Treasurer's fiscal policy is wrong, mm-hmm. and to cover that up, he's seeking to somehow say that the, the Reserve Bank governor should fix it through monetary policy. Monetary policy is 1%. tapped out. Yeah. Tapped out. Everybody's saying, and it's not just the governor of the, uh, of the RBA in Australia. I mean... It, there has been an excessive reliance on monetary policy because governments around the world have been dominated by an austerity ethos and therefore a reluctance 
to effectively deploy fiscal policy. Fiscal policy here and around the world should be playing a much, much larger role uh, as we seek to deal with the economic challenges that we face 10 years on uh, from the Great Recession. And, you know, obviously, uh, you know, uh, when you were Treasurer in the then-run government, uh, there was a massive intervention via stimulus package. Yeah. Do you think it's possible today with the world the way that it is for the no. global response that we saw from every country to be coordinated through the G20 or any other mechanism? Well, 10 years ago, in fact, in uh, March, uh, early April 2009, uh, the world came together via the G20 uh, and put in place a massive stimulus package to save the world uh, from a Great Depression Mark II and to ensure it was only a great, uh, only the Great Recession. Despite that package, it's taken most developed economies over a decade to come out. Australia sailed through that period. Our economy now is almost 35% bigger than it was in 2007. The American economy uh, is in the low 20s. The British economy is around 20 or a bit below. We sailed through, and because we didn't see the loss of hundreds of thousands of jobs and the destruction of so many uh, small businesses... We averted the, the skills and capital destruction that dragged other economies around the world down. Uh, yet still, the Conservative parties in this country carry on as if this was a massive mistake. Now, because of the, uh, if you like, the, uh, the rise of the radical right, it's hard to see us getting the sort of international cooperation that we got from the London summit in 2009 that dragged the world uh, out of the, a recession and didn't become a depression. If we have to go into those circumstances again, I don't think we are or will see the sort of uh, actions the G20 took 10 years ago, and that will be a tragedy if that happens. And so uh, a lot of this dysfunction we're seeing... Um principally probably arises from the election of Donald Trump in the United States, who been a disruptive force for the you know, the old world order, if you can call it that, and then also the rise of China. Australia finds itself in the middle of this, particularly the you know, one of the big headwinds in our economy uh, relates to this, uh, this so-called trade war between China and the US. I mean, how do we navigate that um, in a political sense and in an economic sense? Well, sensibly, because our principal um, trade relationship with, is with China, our principal investment relationship uh, is with uh, the rest of the developed world, uh, and our principal security relationship is with the United States. So we have to be uh, incredibly careful and deft uh, in what we do. We can't be compliant uh, if the Chinese are out of, uh, uh, you know, out of step when it comes to you know really important issues like the South China Sea, or for that matter, even Hong Kong. Uh, but equally, you know, when we are seeing some of the absurd decisions announced by the US president, we can't be seen to necessarily be compliant there. There is a real challenge for diplomacy um, and nuance uh, for us uh, to um, navigate uh, what is a very, very difficult period. You see, this issue of inequality, however, is not just one. Uh, that's a problem uh, in the US and in the developed world. It's a massive problem in China itself. And I think you'll find a massive problem behind the protests that you are also seeing in Hong Kong as well. Because There's a real challenge around the rental market there. Yes, and that's right. Wages that's right. Intergenerational issue. Uh, you know, it's not just a, a question of political rights, uh, but uh, they have no political rights and are facing, if you like, uh, economic prospects that they can have no say in. Or, 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 or real impact on, on their governance arrangements. So, you know, it's a, it's, it's a complex world. Um, there's no doubt the rise of China has been tremendously beneficial for the Chinese themselves, but also for the rest of the world. But uh, what it requires is principled and nuanced leadership, not bombast. And you touched there on in, 
intergenerational inequality. I'm kind of curious about that because one of the big themes of the last election, returning back to the election, was this question of uh, you know the imputation credits became a big focus and and, and the impact on uh, on retirees. What about the the impact on young people who aren't able to get a, a secure job or aren't able to increase the yeah. property market? How are we going to balance? It's a very good point. Intergenerational. Well, uh, we have got a huge intergenerational inequity problem, mm-hmm. uh, and my view is that uh, the um, uh, you know our actions on negative gearing were broadly supported across the community for the very reasons that you have just outlined. I've got lost track of the number of people I know have got negatively geared properties, but. Absolutely understand that it has to be fundamental change in this area if their kids and or their grandkids are ever going to get a toehold in the market. So I don't think that was one of those policies that was responsible for the blowback uh, in in the election. Uh, There might be ways in which it could be nuanced and changed, but the fundamental generational inequity involved in those arrangements is one, I believe, that is understood in the community and the consequence was a tolerance for change uh, in that area. Well... The thing is, as well, I mean, on the question of negative gearing, the, the, um, that was a policy Labor took in 2016. Exactly. When it uh, very nearly won the election mm. and uh, by uh, one seat majority mm. or left, mm. left the term of government and minority mm. government at the time. So, um, you know, I've just sort of, in terms of what are the policies that we need to do, though, to make sure that we can, because one of the things that worries me is young people increasingly feeling disenfranchised from the countries that they're residing in mm. in terms of youth, youth unemployment in the regions. And I think some of this sort of, far-right politics we're seeing was trumpification of the regions. A lot of it is from young people not feeling they got a chance to get their hand on the first round. Well, run. we've got to spend a lot more time uh, interacting and communicating uh, in, uh, in, in this area. I, I think a lot of young people want to know that principle matters. I think a lot of people want to know that values matter. Now, you know, our challenge uh, is to live up to that creed. Um, and uh, this is a point that, uh, that I, I, I'm going to continue to make as, as president of the party, that... Um, you know, the principles and values matter, uh, but so too uh, does compromise from time to time because to ultimately implement your principles and your values, you've got a, you've got a whole power and we have to be seen to be able to do that uh, in ethical ways. Uh, and uh, I believe there's probably no party uh, uh, around the world better in a better position to actually do that properly than the Australian Labor Party. Uh, the period of, of government under Hawke and Keating, the period of government under Rudd and Gillard, uh, for one of any, over and above any of the blemishes those governments had, uh, did achieve an enormous amount, uh, very much in the tradition uh, of, of earlier Labor governments, whether it's post-war reconstruction uh, under Chifley. Uh, Labor's got a tremendous history uh, to draw from as we go forward. Uh, and to demonstrate to people that uh, that politics and and government can be a force for good and can make a difference uh, in the lives of people. But it's just making a difference through government decision-making is not something that happens one day and it's seen the next. Uh, to convince people that uh, these objectives can only be achieved in the long term, not the short term, uh, is a challenge because the populist from the radical right uh, will never give a principled and effective policy a chance to get off the ground. No greater example of this than what, is, than what the Conservatives did to the carbon price. Mm. If that carbon price had survived in Australia Day, we would be having an entirely different political and economic debate. And what sections of the business community aligned with the radical right of the Liberal Party did in the destruction of the carbon price will go down in history as one of the most wanton acts of, of, just, of economic and social destruction in the history of our nation.
Mm. I actually also give a special shout out to the Greens for voting against the ETS exactly. twice in and 2009. <laughs> but, uh, exactly. We'll do, I always do like that to remind well. my friends of that uh, yeah. if they're particularly uh, <clears throat> left wing uh, inner city Greens that it's, uh, there's only one party that's put mm. legislation uh, in part, as a party of government uh, to the floor and enacted price and action and climate change. But, well, if we would have got it through back in 2009, a lot of the other events that, that occurred may not have occurred either. But anyway. Mm. Um, and so. How, how does Labor, I mean, the last 10 years, I think the, the climate wars of the last decade in Australia have been pretty devastating, um, uh, both the, the cause of climate action, but also on progressive politics. I mean, how do we square this circle between this uh, young people who are very energised uh, about climate change and people in the inner city? That I think I'm well, we've got, to, we've, got to, we've got to get them to understand that when you're tackling climate change and doing very substantial uh, emissions reductions, it's just not a question of coal. Mm. It's, it's a question of, uh, of emissions reductions across the board. Of course, we, we have to move as quickly as we can uh, from fossil fuels uh, and replace that with renew- renewable energy. And it has to be driven. It has to be driven, um, you know, by, by a price on carbon. And the problem at the moment is not driven by a price on carbon. Many of these well-intentioned people think that their, their, their um, obligations are discharged by fighting against a particular coal mine here or there. The truth is that our, our, that, that our, um, our coal, uh, our thermal coal, is 4% of world thermal coal. Most thermal coal around the world is, is, is mined locally uh, and used locally. And used locally. Yeah. What the world needs, what Australia needs, is a carbon price to make us make, for us to make the transition across all of those elements. To think that if you knock off Adani or knock off a couple of coal mines in the Adani Basin, that this is some substantive uh, contribution uh, to the fight against climate change in the short term or the long term is simply not true. Yes, we have to make that, uh, uh, that change. We are, despite the government's opposition, uh, make, uh, making substantial headway on renewable energy, thanks largely uh, to the NAUS of Progressive Business and the Clean Energy Finance Corporation that I set up uh, and that the Conservatives did not manage to destroy. So this climate change debate is broader and more complex than it appears in the media. And as a progressive party, we've got to continue to argue uh, for a strong set of emissions reductions, which are far greater in their impact and in their scope uh, than any one particular coal mine at any one point of time. I was with Nicholas Stern the day that he announced the Stern Report. Back in 2000. Oh, no, no. Well, seven. Yeah, six, prob- six, <laughs> six, probably. God, uh, when I was in, I I was in Whitehall visiting Gordon Brown. Yeah. You know, and if you go to the Stern Report, it always envisaged that, you know, that, that coal production would go down gradually uh, as renewable energy went up. And, and that, that has not fundamentally changed. Uh, we are not getting the emissions reductions across many of the other critical sectors that we need. And so much of this concentration on a particular mine here or there uh, drags critical attention away from what is a diabolically difficult area of public policy, achieving these reductions across a whole range of sectors that people never talk about. Well, I think that... And the other thing I think we need to... You know, those that are passionate about climate change, and everyone accepts we need to make a significant uh, action in that space. I think one of the things that challenges of the politics of it is the asymmetry of who's impacted. Yeah. And so people that are very passionate about the inner city, 
their job's not impacted, but the people that perhaps exactly. are going to be impacted. Yeah, and, 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 when the, and where the people are impacted, they feel that the people that are, have strong views uh, don't care about them. Yeah. So you get a political backlash that ultimately undermines the progress on climate change Correct. because a very significant section of the progressive alliance is told by another section of it that they don't count anymore or that they don't like their lifestyles or they don't know how to think or they're ignorant. And that was the problem uh, of the Bob Brown caravan. Indeed. And, uh, you know, and you know, we just can't go down that road if we are going to win this fight against climate change. Yeah, and we need to build those coalitions and, and find ways. I think I think there's a role for industry policy in terms of finding ways um, Absolutely. industry is going to decline over time. You know what I find when I go out? It, in the business community, it's a generational thing. If you meet anyone now involved in business under 50, they're talking the economics of climate change because what's going to drive climate change uh, is, not, is not necessarily reductions targets. It's going to be the fact that the market won't lend to these people. Uh, that uh, there's good business to be done. So you can have a decent conversation with many in the, in the business community who are younger because they actually get the economics of climate change as well as, a, uh, as, well as the environmental issue and outcome. Uh, and they are actively out there uh, involved in the, fright, in the fight in a commercial way. And we need all of them in the tent. And so I just want to turn uh, a little bit back to your time uh, as Treasurer and Deputy Prime Minister uh, in the Gillard Government, commissioned the Asian Century White Paper. I'm kind of curious to contrast the view of the government then with how the world's turned out. I mean, it was a very cheery, all-upside uh, sort of document about the you know, the economic potential and perhaps overlooked maybe some of the, the bigger challenges of an assertive China that we've seen. In the well, it wasn't, meant to, it wasn't meant to deal with security matters. I mean, it was a, it was a very good paper. And, you know, it, these people would have been burning books back in the 1500s. I mean, they eliminated the Asian Century White Paper from every government website. Is that right? Yeah, absolutely. So absolutely. It's just, it's just gone. Um, I mean, I recommend it to anyone. <laughs> anyone who's interested in the future of our country should go and read uh, the Asian Century White Paper. How do they find it? Well, it's... <laughs> it's on Wayne's website. For, for, well, fortunately, it's still around. But, right. you know, but... Well, that's an interesting anyway, aside, but anyway, we're getting into the... Yeah. Uh, and it was so well received in the, in the region. Mm. And, and, and in many ways, as I moved around and the members of the committee moved around, it was, if you like, putting the final nail in the coffin of, you know, white Australia, that they finally thought, you know, uh, over a whole range of issues, this seemed to bring together the notion that Australia saw itself as Asian-facing and part of Asia. You know, and we have a different discussion now about Asia and Australia than we had when I first, you know, went to university or indeed was in politics for the first decade or so. Uh, that, you know, that we all understand that it's it's part of, uh, you know, a growing region uh, and, and, and with it come the challenges. One of the biggest one we're just talking of, climate change. Um, and the other one is uh, growing inequality because, unfortunately, the trickle-down model that has been used in the developed world is now being aggressively used in the developing world, including by communist China, um, mm. uh, and resulting in rampant wealth and in income inequality in both uh, types of countries. So the problems we face are, uh, you know, are similar. Of course, in our region, at least a third of the countries are in dire poverty in, in what you'd call uh, the broader Asian region, and, and a lot more work needs to be done uh, in dealing with their challenges. It's not just a question of China when you're dealing with Asia. Non-China Asia is bigger. Than China, yeah, sorry, India, uh, and, Asia, and, and you could, well, and, but all those other little countries. Yeah. So there are so many of them that right. where, where where the very basics basis of development has not even begun. Mm. So there's still a lot of poverty alleviation to be done in Asia. We do focus on the Asian middle class because it's what brings so much prosperity to our country. But we shouldn't lose focus either in Asia or in a, in, in in Australia on those struggling countries across the Asia Pacific. 
So you sort of, you know, when you said that the, uh, the uh, you know, the white paper was an economic document, obviously there were defence white papers at the time, mm. and there's that duality that exists in public policy in Australia, which is that kind of, mm. uh, Tony Abbott describes it as fear and greed. Um, do you think the relationship with China uh, since the Rudd Gillard government has changed, and you know how do how do, would a Labor government best interact um, with a more assertive China now? Well, I think I think with the I think the Abbott government bungled it from day one when they held that uh, completely dysfunctional G20 in Brisbane, and uh, Prime Minister started lecturing global leaders about Australian, the Australian health system and all sorts of bizarre things, and any banned any banned climate change from the discussion oh, at right. the summit. So uh, President Obama. Obama went and gave a speech up the road at the university about the importance of climate change. Uh, it hasn't been a great start in terms of our relationships um, uh, with with China. I, I think the government's playing uh, catch up there now, uh, but still is deeply confused about where we are and who we are. And so, you know, one of the things you responsibility when you're treasurer is FERB decisions and the FERB board reports to treasurer and to cabinet. But I'm curious about foreign investment decisions, you know. Um, should we worry about uh, state-owned enterprises buying up Absolutely. And owned I, by an autocracy? Well, yeah. of course we should. And one of the first statements I made after I was... Uh, after I became treasurer in the middle of 2008 uh, was putting obligations uh, on, on approvals for state-owned enterprises. We don't want uh, any government body dominating a supply chain um, or dominating a market. And, in, and you talk about Chinalco trying to buy Rio Tinto. Well, far bigger than that, but yeah. uh, take over Rio. There was actually always a, an attempted takeover of BHP. Mm. Um, so, you know, if, if, if we had five medium-sized com- com- companies in a particular area and they wanted to buy one, well, that's fine. Mm. But if they wanted to come in and buy the lot, no. So we put down some principles about competition being observed, you know, the rule of law, a whole series of principles because... Ultimately, you don't want another government directing the private enterprise activities of it, of its subsidiaries in your country. Mm. And, and what about things like critical infrastructure? We've had uh, a Huawei absolutely, band, like, absolutely. 5G network, but of course, well, that, I, in fact, I did that. Um, uh, yeah, from, that was from the NBN. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, for you know, for for, for good reason. Um, so yes, there are national security implications of these things. Always has been, always will be. You shouldn't be letting foreign countries buy companies in your uh, missile launch zone for example, and I stopped uh, one Chinese company from doing that. I see there's another example of that that's almost live at the moment, of course. Uh, There's always always been um, a national security element of any form of economic policy. Uh, And I think in recent years, uh, uh, the capacity, including under us, of the FIRB to be broader in its outlook, if you like, has increased. And so what about, you know, a situation where government makes a decision and then China often responds fair bit of hostility or uh, about those decisions. You know, you've got, um, uh, uh, you know, sort of this use of uh, what they call hostage diplomacy with, um, you know, the detaining of you know, Canadian citizens, Australian citizens in response to 5G decision here and also with the arrest of the Huawei executive in Canada. I mean, how does a government, how did you stand up to Chinese decisions at the time and how does the government do that going forward? Well, I had a, I had a, cu- a couple of particularly difficult and... Um tense uh, meetings. Uh, in fact, uh, when I went to China to explain uh, the fact that for the first time Australia was going to enforce responsibilities on state-owned enterprise investments in Australia, I was accused openly of being a racist. Mm. Now, that regime exists to this day. It was put in place uh, for a good purpose. Uh, but but you you know when you, when you look at these people you got to you got to go and look them in the eye and tell them what you're doing. I think one of the problems that we've got is a lot of this diplomacy doesn't 
necessarily come from what have been across-the-table discussions. Yeah, you're talking about megaphone diplomacy. Yeah, megaphone diplomacy really works. Uh, but if you're going to engage in it, you want to make sure you go and look in their eyes first. Mm. So you think there's a, a bigger interpersonal thing that we should be working on? In that well, I think you've got to work on it, but you've got to be realistic. It won't always work. Although that, one you, you don't know until you try. Indeed. But, I mean, you know, for example, with Turnbull, um, when uh, he was making some decisions around foreign interference, around donations, et cetera, uh, they, Australia was then essentially put in the what they call the freezer where meetings were all cancelled. Well, so how do you handle that? Well, I don't know whether that was what caused that. I mean, but, you know, we, we've got, and any country would have responsibilities. For example, uh, China wouldn't let us invest in a company in their missile launch zone, so we most certainly wouldn't let them do it in ours. And that was the conversation I had with the minister at the time, and it turned out to be amicable. So, you know, you've got to have these discussions. They are difficult. There will be positioning publicly. There will be conflicts. But the most important thing, and you don't always know what's going on, is that there needs to be, under the surface, effective dialogue by either ministers, diplomats or both. And that's right. That pres- the principle of reciprocity, I think, is a good one, um, and and I think it's a, a very uh, useful one for us to use. So, uh, in terms of, you know, do you see a new, you know, we haven't had blocks in the world since the you know the fall of the Berlin Wall. Do you see increasingly, you know, blocks emerging between the so-called you know liberal democracies and well, autocrats? What, what I see, what I see emerging is a, is, is is a hard right movement, uh, which has uh, its roots uh, in both the United States, uh, in uh, a number of. Uh, uh, a number of European countries, and most particularly Hungary, uh, uh, backed in uh, by uh, some pretty sophisticated operations coming out of the uh, out of the Soviet Union, and there is plenty of documentation now about how that worked in, in the last presidential campaign in the United States, how it worked in the in the in the Brexit campaign, uh, and how uh, it has played out in in a number of other countries. So yes, I think we have to be alive and alert to the fact that there is an authoritarian push. Uh, across a number of democracies to influence domestic outcomes. And so, what do you, you know, how do we deal with this challenge of these open systems? You know, this face, this use of Facebook, social media, and you touched on it at the beginning. Well, but, but in, be, question, by, right? by making sure um, that 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 your capacity to repel it uh, is 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 high to detect it and then repel it. And should we be holding these, you know, these, you know Facebook's an American company? There's, there's no question that account. Facebook and those organisations are going to be subject to much more regulation and scrutiny than they have in the past, and that will be a good thing. And so just turning to back to Australian politics, you know, uh, you uh, recently retired from Parliament, though you're not retired, I know that, and otherwise uh, you'd jump across the table at me, I'm sure if I were to say that, but are you missing politics at all? The well, I, I got out of Parliament, but I haven't got out of politics. <laughs> well, yeah, still pa- um, the president of the party. So. Yeah, no, well, I got out because I wanted to have a bit more time uh, to particularly spend with family. Uh, I've got two grandchildren. Uh, two children living overseas, so a bit of travel. I'll never give up my public policy interests, and I'll never give up fighting for the Australian national interest. Uh, but I thought it was time to move on in terms of the parliamentary party. But I'm not giving up the discussion or the battle of ideas uh, because that's something I've dedicated my life to. I just want a bit more time uh, to get into surf, uh, which I'm doing a lot more of, uh, and to be with and talk to my family. And so, one of the things you talked about in the in your valedictory, but also in other you know, in the last few years of uh, being in Parliament, was 
the impact of time away and the, yeah. that, the, and what politics does to families and to people. I mean, yeah, but give us a bit of insight about... Well, it's a, it's a cruel world and uh, if you've got a busy job, you're away a lot. So you miss so many important events uh, and, you, and you run the risk of being emotionally, you know, separated from and decoupled from, you know, the most important people in your life. Um, and, and I said in my main speech that I wished I'd actually made more time for that and I, I, I do regard that as a failure um, in, uh, in my career. Uh, I've just been fortunate to have a very tolerant family, but it's something that I want to spend more time uh, on. In your time in politics, it'd probably be fair to say that the prestige of the political class and of our institutions has probably diminished. Your faith in institutions is much lower now when you look at any survey, not just in Australia, around the world. You know, what's driving that and can we get it back and how? Because I think well, it's so I think, important. I think the radical right is driving it. I, I, I think there are political forces driving uh, driving this who've got an interest in demonising the role that government has in our society and that is a vested interest so they can grab more of the product of the labour of, uh, uh, of, of our people uh, than they're entitled to. I think it's very much driven. It's also driven uh, in an underlying way by uh, many of the technological changes, uh, the speed of communication, the nature of communication, all sort of hyper-drive that uh, or, or you know, make it a, a hyper-cycle, if you like. So and politics is sort yeah. of slow. The legislative yeah. process is slow. The world yeah. is quick. Yeah. So it's a combination of all of those things. Um, but we've got to get back to a bit more moral base and value base in our politics we've got at the moment. And to do that, you've got to out these people and hidden actors behind the scenes who are setting out to destroy trust between people. And you talked again in your valedictory about the, the, a turning point in Australian politics being uh, the Tampa crisis, and you sort of touched there on values and morality. How did that impact on politics? And what are the... You know, you, well, it was, it, was the, it was the beginning of the radical right in Australia, purposely, deliberately uh, using race as, as, as a wedge. Uh, and we hadn't seen that in that way in this country before. We've, it's been a feature of politics in the United States uh, for a long period of time. But um, you know, the first we really saw of it, you know, as the country base, basically came out of its, um, you know, its white Australia and embraced multiculturalism was Pauline Hanson. Uh, and what we've now seen is the embrace of Pauline Hanson uh, by the conservative side of politics uh, and the use of race and gender issues both openly and covertly and, and I mean covertly, even in the recent election campaign, where most people would say to you, oh, the refugees or all these things weren't an issue. They were. They were out there and they were pushed hard by, by the, the radical right under the scenes in many marginal electorates around the country. Um, so, you know, we, we, we've got to try to eradicate that again. But my fear is the Liberal Party has been taken over by the extreme right and we're in for an extended battle here, a battle for the nature and, and, and the type of Australia that we all want. And it's interesting because, you know, you talk, like, in 87, Howard um, was basically pilloried for his attitude yeah. to Asian immigration. Yeah. Um, then when Hanson first came to Parliament, she was basically excluded by the entire political class, but also by now the Now you've media. got Channel 7 paying her and TV channels paying her to do interviews mm. when she's an elected member of Parliament. It is an outrage and, 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 and a disgrace that media organisations in Australia are involved in that sort of activity. And then... When the other, the you know, the somewhat perverse one is that Tony Abbott, of course, was famously involved in destroying One Nation, Pauline Hanson, and then the next, you know, the next iteration when Hanson returned back into Parliament in the 2016 yeah. double dissolution election. Uh, well, the big he, he was getting photos with her and saying mm. that One Nation is now different. Well, the big um, change in my time of politics has been the elimination of smaller liberals from the Liberal Party and its takeover by a US-style Republican right, and ditto significant sections of the business community as well. 
The Americanization, if you like, of the conservative side of politics has occurred in our lifetimes and we're now living with the consequences of it. And as, and as I said before, Exhibit A is energy policy. And so I was curious, and I've put this question to you before to give you a bit of a chance, but you know, your best day on the job and your worst day of the job in politics, I'm very curious about you know, what are the things that make you know, politics so powerful and what can make it so hard? Ah, oh, well, the best day was the day we uh, found out that we weren't going to go into recession, that all the stimulus that we put out there had effectively worked. It was the, um, you know, the very, very, very best uh, day uh, that I've ever had in, in, in public uh, life. Because, you know, we didn't know. You know, we were operating in a very difficult policy um, environment. Now, the final question I always ask everyone, you know, uh, so it's a foreign policy podcast largely. We've covered a lot of terrain, but so three foreigners alive or dead, you know, would be at a barbecue at Swanee's. Who would they be and why? Uh, I think I'd go for Neil Young. Just, uh, you know, just for a bit of sort of musical with a lose. I could have easily picked Springsteen. Well, I was going to say, I mean, I think you Or even you'll... Dylan. So we'd just take those three. Okay. Uh, we'll just... Put them over those, there. In terms of, I think everyone, you're paying about you know, odds on to pick Springsteen, but we'll go with Neil Young. Uh, I'm just in the Neil Young phase at the moment Very for some good. reason. Um, uh, secondly, um, it's a sort of toss up, but I'd actually say Lyndon Johnson. Yeah, LBJ. Well, you know, I, I, you know, he really stuffed up the Vietnam War, but I tell you what, um, what he did with the Great Society, just just about every big social and economic change of a progressive nature. Uh, most of which have now been eliminated in one form or another was put in uh, put in by that guy. And anyone who re- who reads the Robert Cato uh, books will understand why that I've, I've chosen LBJ. He's a fascinating character as well because he's considered to be the ultimate machine politician who did so much progressive change, right? So well, that's it. Well, th- maybe there's a connection. Maybe he knew how to get it done. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, and uh, and thirdly, uh, well, you. I better I better choose an, an Aussie. No, you know, there's got to be foreign. Oh, foreign. Oh, right. Yeah, oh, yeah. Well, well you, you're probably um, uh, probably going to go for Mandela, right? Eh? Oh well, Nelson Mandela. <laughs> yeah, indeed. I mean, he'll at least start. You know, Nelson Mandela, LBJ, and uh, Neil Young all in a room at Swanee's would be a good one. I <laughs> <laughs> um, well, look, um, before we go, I'm going to give a plug to the podcast. If you haven't rated and reviewed it yet, please get on. It's been a great chat with Wayne. If you don't do it for me, do it for Swanee because, uh, you know, he's going to want to see this uh, getting out to as many people as possible. So, Wayne, thanks so much for joining us and I really appreciate the chat. Pleasure. Before you run off, if you could quickly jump onto iTunes or your favourite podcasting app and give the show a rating and review, it would be really beneficial. Ratings and reviews help lift the rankings of the show, make sure that algorithms are recognising the show and showing it to other people and spreading the word. Hope you enjoyed the episode and see you next time. You were just listening to Diplomates, a geopolitical chinwag. For more episodes, visit www.diplomates.show or subscribe to the podcast on iTunes or through any of your favorite podcast channels. This podcast was brought to you by Minimal Productions, producer Jim Mintz.